Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nick Finzer, and I'm here with the amazing guitarist, composer, educator, uh, New York City local, native, sort of native, uh, Alex Wentz. Hey, Alex, thanks for being here. Nick, it's good to see you and hear you. Yeah, man, it's good to see you too. Um, I guess you were born in New Jersey, not in New York City. I, I was. Well, actually, I was born in California. Oh, and, see, I got it all wrong. Yeah, way off. But I, I grew up on the East Coast, and we moved to the East Coast when I was like two years old. So, and New Jersey for since for the last probably twenty five years. So you can say okay, that. Okay, all right. Sorry, sorry, but but now everyone's got the biographical information straight. <laughs> we, yeah, exactly. We can jump in and talk about a little bit about the record. So let's tell people about the record first, and then we'll kind of loop back around. Um, so. It's coming out on November 6th. Yes. Tell us what it's called and who's on it. All right. Alex Wentz Trio. Live to Tape is the name of the record. Um, and uh, it's cool. I'm excited to see what the response will be to it because um, unintentionally ended up just kind of being like a, uh, a record akin to sort of like the Blue Note records of the day and stuff like that where we ended up in a studio and we had about six hours to record and it was uh, my trio. We played together for about five years now with uh, Jimmy McBride and Dave Barron. And we had repertoire that we knew we wanted to play and we just did it. You know, so many uh, recordings that happen nowadays, it's because of cost and scheduling ends up being something where you're like rehearsing the tunes in the session and, you know, you need two days to make it work. And, uh, this session came upon me sort of last minute through a, uh, my good friend, Evan Sutton, who works at Red Bull Studios or worked at Red Bull Studios at the time. And they happen to have a tape machine. He said, do you want to make a record? And within two weeks, we did it. So uh, a lot of things about it are slightly different than the way that a lot of jazz records are made now. So I'm excited with how it came out and to see what people think of it. Nice. Well, that's kind of interesting to touch on. So let's, let's talk about it right now. What's different about that process of recording to tape if for people that maybe don't really know what's different about it or what's possible slash not possible? Mm -hmm. Well, we just went into it with the mindset uh, that overdubbing was going to be complicated and to avoid it almost at all costs, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, and that's part of the listening experience of listening to tape recordings, right? Right. Um, is that there are imperfections, but you don't listen to them looking for those imperfections. They're, you know, classic statements unto themselves. So I think that allowed us all to be relaxed with just like the way that takes came out with like an overall mood rather than it being perfect in terms of the notes and stuff like that. Uh, and we always had to make sure there was enough tape left to keep recording and oh, yeah. stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's listening back was like, we, we didn't really listen back very much as well. I mean, it's possible to do all this sort of stuff, but it takes time. And we, we only were going to be there for a couple hours of a day. So um, we didn't really want to waste time with that. We wanted to get a lot of stuff recorded, a lot of tracks recorded and, really just embraced the sound of it and knew that once we were done, we'd have, you know, some nice sound of tunes. Yeah. And I think it came out super well. It's really great. Um, you know, it's kind of got that kind of loose feel of 
kind of, you know, feel you're free to like play. You played a lot. It wasn't just like, here's our three minute tracks, which is nice. Yeah, we stretched out a little bit on some of the tracks and then others we didn't, but it was all very uh, organic in the studio. I mean, I knew what we wanted to play, but we've also, we had, we had also played at least six of the seven tracks live before. Um, and as a result, I think it just sounds that it sounds that way. You know, you can always tell it's like, to me, when I listen to records, you can almost tell what the vibe is, what the vibe was in the studio, you know, just by listening to it, but regardless of knowing the information. I mean, sometimes you get proven wrong by that, but I think when, when people are, I record with my friends, you know, how much better does it get? Right. No, I hear, I hear you. So let's loop back around and kind of talk about you for a minute. This is your first release with, with us, with Outside of Music. And so some yeah. of our audience might not be totally familiar. It's not your first record, though. This is, I think, your third. Is that right? This is my third. Third, yes. yeah. So your third record. But let's back up. How'd you get into playing jazz music? How'd you get into playing guitar um, in the first place? Well, um, let's see. My dad when I was born was still a professional musician. He, he plays trombone, um, which I know you appreciate, you know, of course. That's, yeah. that's, that's why it, you're, I'm in your band, right? You know, yeah, that's it. That's just cause you're trombone band. legacy. <laughs> um, but he, um, was, was very active in the music scene in LA in like the seventies and the eighties. He did a lot of studio sessions. He did a lot of touring. He toured with Ray Charles, Tom Jones, Quincy Jones, the Brothers Johnson. Um, he played on Shuggy Otis, Inspiration Information. He played with Charlie Hayden. He had a band called Baya with um, some well-known jazz musicians in it, George Cables and John Hurd. So, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was a player too. And so um, he no longer does that professionally. And uh, I think when I was around two or three, he made a transition in career. So he works in digital media now, but he still uh, practices and still tries to play. So as a result, I mean, there, there's a musical gene. And actually before that, even my great grandfather on his side led a society band in the twenties in New York. And his name was Julie Wentz. And you can find on YouTube, like the 78 recordings of that band. So Oh, yeah, wow. there's actually like a lineage there, but um, music was always around the house. So I started playing guitar at a young age. I think it was four or five. And um, but of, of course, it wasn't necessarily jazz that got me at first. I heard Slash from Guns N' Roses on the radio and I Classic. said, I want to do that. And my dad said, you want to play guitar? I said, yes. He said, OK, he said, but you're going to take lessons. So I, I took lessons that whole time. Um, I was way more into blues and Jimi Hendrix and later I got into like punk rock and ska and stuff like that. But I was always playing and I was studying with musicians who were um, well versed in jazz. So I was learning jazz theory and how to play and I, I just didn't quite get into it musically yet. And then around the time I got into maybe like eighth grade, I started listening to it more and understanding more of it and um, being surrounded by other jazz musicians. I did the New Jersey Performing Arts Center Jazz Routines program, which I'm a faculty member of now and uh, Berkeley five-week camp and all these things where you, you kind of 
think you're good as a musician and then you get put into a situation with like a bigger, you know, you're in a bigger fishbowl, right? With, with mm -hmm. more musicians and you hear other musicians your age and what they sound like. When you do that, I mean, it, it just, um, it's either gonna lead to one or two things. You're gonna wanna just like stay where you're at and you know, just be okay with that or it's gonna push you. And for me, that kind of pushed me into taking the music more seriously and uh, everything kind of continued from there. I went to Berkeley for um, undergrad and then Juilliard for my master's. Right, which is where we eventually where we met. met. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, but how did you get from like what was there a specific like not recording, but maybe there's a specific recording or player that kind of transitioned you from like slash to like what you do now? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's a good question because there were certain things that I checked out that kind of led me to believe that I could get into it. I mean, certainly, uh, John Schofield was one, you know, I've always loved him and hearing some of his records from the nineties, like, um, there were two that I used to listen to a lot called Hand Jive and uh, Groovalation. And both of those, when I heard them, it was that Jimi Hendrix kind of raw sort of sound, but with jazz language and uh, a different sort of uh, technique and approach to playing. So that kind of showed me that uh, there's a lot of guitar players like me who come into the music from another genre, but can incorporate what they've learned from that genre into the music. Um, Bill Frizzell is another one. And another record, which I don't really listen to anymore, but uh, did kind of bring me back into jazz, which is funny, is John Zorn, Naked City. Oh yeah. I don't know if you, have you ever listened to that? I have, yeah. It's insane. It's crazy. It's one of the craziest records ever, but I was into like hardcore punk, um, you know? Okay. So it was like, interspersed with these crazy crazy like tribal crazy hardcore jams that would be like 20 seconds of straight ahead jazz <laughs> right so, yeah. i don't know something about that um it's weird like i'm, I'm much more straight ahead as a musician now but right. you know i i kind of was like into certain avant-garde things and that led me back into getting into straight ahead jazz that's really interesting actually but, but they were transition records, yeah. But it makes sense. I mean, it kind of makes sense to me. You're like a very, very versatile guitarist. You function in a lot of settings. You're not just, you're not just playing one thing or another. I mean, you've always played all different styles. And I mean, even, even just in the projects or bands that I've seen you play, and you're playing with like ATN Charles doing one thing, or like doing your own thing. It's like straight ahead, or playing with me, and it's some combination. And um, so, how do you approach that as a guitarist to? be in so many of these different roles or worlds? It's a good question as well. Um, I mean, I think the way that it has to go is, is you either appreciate all styles of music and want to involve yourself in it, or you want to be more of a specialist in the way that you play. And to me, like, I just love all types of music. And so uh, I enjoy the challenge of being put into a group where the inspiration is from maybe a genre that I'm not as comfortable with, but then I get to listen to it and check out what the guitar player does. I mean, guitar is, is an awesome instrument because it's uh, ever present in so many genres of music, right? You know, no offense to uh, trombone, but hey, like, hey, come on, right, man. right. I mean, but I'm just saying like 90% of the time, like 
even in like pop music, like you're like, okay, well the trombone's role is I'm in the horn section. We learn the horn parts and then we right. play, right? Mm -hmm. Guitar, it could be so many different things, right? You could be in the background doing uh, rhythm, rhythm sort of stuff, you know, keeping the rhythm section going. You could be a lead taking solos and that solo language is going to be different from genre to genre. Like, you know, the way that you have to solo if you're playing over, um, you know, a buddy guy type blues tune is different from the way that you have to solo over like a Wayne Shorter tune. I mean, you can absorb things to combine them, but in the end, um, I like that challenge of how can I fit my musical personality into uh, this situation well, and do it with respect to the job. genre. Yeah. I mean, you're, you've, you're one, a master of that. I would say from my perspective, you're able to fit into a lot of different things. Um, you're too kind. Oh, come on. Let me just keep giving you compliments just okay. the whole time. I love the trombone by the way. And, <laughs> and good horn. That's why you put up with me. Trombone. So there you go. There you go. Um, so here's one other thing you that you also have worked probably just worked on, but guitarists are notoriously bad at reading music, but you, my friend can actually read music. So how, where did, how did that, uh, how'd you well, make sure careful, of that? Be careful, you know, don't, I always say that like overgeneralizing the best, the best guitar reader would be like the worst reader in a sax section. If they played saxophone, sure. you know, it's like, yeah. there's a, there's a, uh, you know, there's a floor there to it. I mean, there's a ceiling, let's put it that way. Sure. But um, yeah, I had teachers when I was growing up who made me read. That's mm -hmm. pretty much it. Like uh, I started studying with the late Vic Juris when I was in my freshman year of high school. And he was one of the greatest sight readers on guitar I've ever seen. You know, he could read anything, he could play anything. So that was something he really, um, made sure that I was working on all the time. And as a result, you know, I didn't even know it because it was just, it was, that was my assignments every week. You know, you'd give me something to read and it could, it was, it was really varied in the uh, repertoire too. It could be like a violin etude or like a piece from like the Yusef Latif book or like um, some like wide interval exercise or something like that. So I had to, and, or a Charlie Parker head where he said, okay, now learn relaxing at Camarillo in fifth position and you know so that just be like something I'd have to work on every week so as a result I kind of had a foundation of where I was as a reader um, which I think informed me when I started going to Berkeley and places like that because uh, I could get placed in a big band where a lot of the writing in for big band in like the at that time the Berkeley Concert Jazz Orchestra with Greg Hopkins the guitar part was not really Freddie Green, it would be its own sort of thing that you had to um, take responsibility of. And so I think that it was a combination of me having those reps of learning how to read on guitar and then maintaining it by just, I'm just always put in situations where I have to read, you know? I still don't think I'm a great sight reader, especially when I compare myself to other instruments, but I can, you know, know that I'm going to feel confident in nailing a part when I get to get to a gig. And it always sort of amazes me how many guitar players have issues with that. It's like, you know, this is your job. Like your job is to read this piece of music in addition to everything else that you do. So, you right. know, you just have to make sure you do it. For sure. Um, so maybe you can 
fill us in a little bit. I know there's like maybe probably different schools of thought in terms of like putting together a guitar trio, leading a guitar trio and different ones throughout the history. What's kind of like your concept? Like how did you come up with the band concept for this trio that ended up recording? Is there like certain things, textures that you are inter interested in exploring or anything? Well, um, a lot of the putting together of this trio is that myself, Dave and Jimmy have just played together for a really long time. So there's a comfort level there already. Um, I've played trio with other musicians and really enjoyed that too. Like I like playing trio with uh, Mark Whitfield and Tamir Schmerling. We've had a lot of nice gigs together or Adam Aruda and Rick Rosado. But you know, all those bands, like there's a comfort level I have with the, the musicians where I know I'm, could give them a piece of music and they're going to interpret it with their own personality, but in a way that they'll be listening to what I'm doing and, and fall along, you know, it's, uh, the thing for me about guitar trio is that, you know, a lot of the responsibility does fall on me. I am the leader. I'm playing the melody. I'm doing most of the soloing. I'm, you know, arranging the band, even if it's just on stage, how things go. So I, in addition to having musicians who are going to push me to interpret the music in a certain way, I want musicians who are going to listen to how I'm suggesting things and interact with it in a way where it can be something new. You know what I mean? Like I have a lot of music that can be kind of open-ended and mm -hmm. uh, the thing that I like to do is just provide recording examples of this is the type of vibe that I want for this tune. It doesn't have to be exactly this, but you know, I'd like to hear what, how you interpret it. And from there, if, if, if you're an open-minded musician, that's what makes Trio playing fun, fun is that um, you really get an opportunity to stretch out the music and it can be its own thing from night after night because there's so much um, freedom. So uh, I like the freedom, but I also like being able to, you know, uh, lead the band into certain, uh, situation musically as well sure yeah yeah i just can only imagine i mean playing trombone trio is hard enough i can't imagine uh having to do it. i mean i guess i know exactly i know the feeling but it's like you have more roles i don't know what i'm saying and you know what yeah no but i think i think that listening to other trios besides guitar is kind of informed me too like i really love listening to piano trios mm -hmm. i can't play like a piano but there are certain things that sometimes piano trios do that are more arranged and more kind of thought out in terms of how the, the band gets organized in terms of who's soloing when, you know, are there send-offs, are there arrangements? And, you know, I can take some of that and apply it to the guitar trios I like that are more open-ended, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that the idea of like it, like there's bass and there's drums and then there's an instrument, right? So you, I could listen to, you know, a sax trio and and get something from that that i can apply to the guitar that's something that's um always been really important to me just kind of overall is you know the guitar is like my musical vessel but listening to other instruments and what they do why can't i do what they do on guitar or attempt to do something similar for sure um so now that people kind of have a context when they go to check out the record live to tape which is out on november 6th if you didn't remember on all streaming platforms uh you can 
what, what do you want people to take away from the record? What do you want them to listen for? Are there any tracks that are especially close to your heart? Well, um, you know, the single off the album Idris, single, it's funny, it's a jazz single. It's still funny to say that. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the, the single that has come out first as, uh, to advertise it, it, it's special to me because I think it's a good example of what we're talking about, where um, it is a piece dedicated to the memory of the late great drummer Idris Muhammad, who was one of the funkiest drummers to ever walk the earth and had a real variety of musical experiences. You know, he toured with Curtis Mayfield and he played with Ahmad Jamal, you know, he played with John Schofield. He led bands with Grover Washington. So there's a lot of cool parts of that discography that I absorbed. And then I wrote a tune in his memory and something that happened over time with playing of playing that tune is, you know, there is this structure to it and we solo over that structure, but there the outros of the tune just kept getting crazier and crazier as we did them live. And so you can think of, it's a 10 minute track, but you can think of it almost as two tracks because there's this long outro jam that essentially has become just part of the tune now. Mm. And it's part of the arrangement, but it's something that happened organically on the bandstand. And that's something that I really love. And I think what people love about jazz is, when you watch something happen and the band is almost surprised by it too. And that happens and then it becomes part of the, uh, the repertoire from, from there on out. Uh, so that is a track that's near and dear for me. And just overall, you know, I think that uh, we go into some interesting places musically. Like we play a tune by St. Vincent, which I did on one of the IFCM uh, albums mm -hmm. with you guys. That's the first time that I actually did it called What Me Worry. And I am treating this record almost like if this was my like interpretation of how I would approach those like classic recordings that were done live to tape mm -hmm. in, you know, the 60s, 50s, 70s, how I'd approach it. And I would play standards, but I would also try to find standards of today. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's really important to me and something that I'll probably try to do from here on out is um, highlight pieces of contemporary singer songwriters that I think can be interpreted into the great American songbook. So I'm excited to see what people think of that. Excellent. And, um, so you're not just leading your trio, you're like a prolific, uh, side, side person in the industry as well. So where can, where else can people find you playing? if and when the gigs come back. <laughs> uh, where, what other projects are you involved with that you're excited about? Um, well, let's see. Uh, I've been playing with Etienne Charles now for oh, maybe eight years now, something like that. Um, and I've done, I think, four or five albums with him. It's always a great musical experience being in his band because of, again, that idea of the guitar has so many roles in that band. Um, at times I use a lot of effects at times I use no effects, you know, at times things are coming out of this like strict uh, sort of classic Calypso background at other times it's like taking these clips of rhythms and applying, you know, modern harmony on top of them. Or at times there'll be a rhythm that comes from, you know, a part of the Island of Trinidad and we put our own spin on it. So there's a lot of cool music to absorb for that. Um, uh, you can hear me with Roxy Koss. Uh, I believe right before coronavirus hit, we were set to 
be uh, getting into the studio to do a new album. So hopefully next year we'll do that. And I think I've been on three or four of her records at this point. Um, let's see. And also, of course, yours truly, Nick Finzer, right? <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to we mention had, me. We had some, we had some dates that we, we were dates. supposed to be doing for casting characters. Yep. Um, the Terraza Big Band, which is a big band I love being a part of. Um, I'm sure we'll do something soon. And uh, I did appear in a movie, which is kind of funny, uh, with Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish. Uh, and that hopefully will come out maybe next year. I don't know. We'll find out. But it's called... Oh, it didn't come out yet. So, yeah. So stay tuned for that because I have a couple cameos in that. That was kind of fun. Did you get to speak or did you just no. play or what? No, I was part of the... Basically, the, without... I don't know. I don't know if this violates an NDA, but I play in a band uh be careful that, that tiffany haddish leads so okay cool you'll, you'll see me in the background i don't think that gives too much away no excellent man well what um what did we not talk about about the record anything you wanted to mention that we haven't mentioned uh mentioned maybe your website where people can find your music yes you uh right now the pre-orders are are still going um, you can go to www.alexwincemusic.com and also alexwince.bandcamp.com. Mm. Uh, of course, I had to make sure that this record, with it being to tape, uh, is available on vinyl. So you can get vinyl copies or CD. And um, you can pre-order it digitally. Um, I'm looking forward to people checking it out and seeing what everyone thinks of it because um, it's it wasn't intended to be this way. It was just meant to be you know, a band that's really comfortable with each other, uh, having a good time in the studio, playing familiar repertoire that, that we've played together a lot. But that's something that doesn't happen a lot in jazz recordings anymore. You know, a lot of times we have one rehearsal and then we have to play a lot of new music. So I think the end product is special just from the fact that there's familiarity. And, um, I hope that enough people check it out where maybe, you know, the, I, our ideas about how the recording process uh, happens can get flipped a little and there'll be more opportunities for bands to record. Right. That's something mm -hmm. that I, uh, I think sometimes is missing in our genre these days is like bands, right. Being able to play a, a set of music enough times that you really want to record it and, it, it's just like can be a relaxed situation in the studio. It, it always makes for really great music. Right. It's always the goal. Never, yeah. has, never, 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 never achieved. <laughs> I was, I was lucky. What can I say? No, no, it's you're not lucky. You set it up to make it happen, but yeah. uh, amazing. Well, Alex, thanks for taking some time to chat about the record today. Uh, make sure you go and check it out. November 6th, live to tape Alex Wentz trio with Dave Barron and Jimmy McBride. So, um, Make sure you check that out. Um, All right. Thanks for chatting today, and uh, we'll catch you real soon. Bye.